This morning we are on our fourth and final hymn uh, in this series that I've titled Longing to Sing. It's about Advent hymns. It's about uh, some of the songs that we sing, some of the songs that you've never sung before, uh, but I've introduced them to you. Uh, Songs, hymns that help us in our uh, waiting, in our longing, in our yearning, which is what Advent is all about. Ultimately, that we are longing and waiting and yearning for the second coming of Christ. His return to set all things right. This week we have probably the least familiar of the four hymns. It's definitely the newest Many of these that we've looked at are are just ancient. One dating, if you remember, all the way back to the first century and to the Apostle James, the the text for that hymn. This one was written in 1934, which practically makes it contemporary Christian music. It was written by Frank Houghton, who had a long life of ministry in England, but also spent time as a missionary in China. He would later go on to be the director of China Inland Mission. He also wrote uh, Facing a Task Unfinished, which is that great missions hymn that the Gettys retooled a few years back and we sing from time to time. He wrote that one as well. He wrote today's hymn, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor, and it's, it's useful for our Advent season, but there's also a story behind when and why he wrote it. It's a sad story. It was written to honor and to esteem uh, some missionaries that Houghton served with in China. John and Betty Stam, they were taken prisoner by communist soldiers, and they, along with their baby girl Helen, were marched to their deaths. At least they thought that was the case for the baby Helen, but they hid the baby Helen in a sleeping bag, and she was discovered five days later, and she survived. But Houghton wrote this hymn in their honor, and here's one of the beautiful things about that, and it's worth imitating, it's worth noting. When he wanted to honor his fallen friends, he didn't write a hymn talking about how great they were. He wrote a hymn talking about how wonderful and how great their Savior is. A couple of very obvious texts that we're going to turn to this morning in light of the lyrics of this hymn. Uh, One is 2 Corinthians 8 and the other is Philippians chapter 2. So if you'd stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, just a single verse there. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God richly bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment. It's a special moment, not because I'm special, not because we're special, but because your Son, the living Word, is special. This Word who took on flesh and came to dwell with us. This Word who He had human authors write down through the direction of His Spirit, this living and abiding Word, this living and powerful Word, would You take this moment that we share together digging into Your Word, and would You use it for Your glory? Would You use it for our good to to further our understanding of this glorious and beautiful Gospel of our glorious and beautiful Savior? the Lord Jesus. Help our understanding this morning. Exalt the Lord Jesus even now. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to see this morning both in the hymn and in the scriptures that we're looking at uh, a broad outline of, of themes, a flowing, a movement of themes Starting with riches, moving to poverty, and coming full circle back to riches. That's the flow of this thing this morning. There's an outline in your worship folder if that's helpful. Let's begin by talking about riches. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 that Jesus was rich. Houghton, in his hymn, First verse, rich beyond all splendor. Now I had planned here a little plug for the Bible reading plan. Someone stole my thunder. But if you are reading along and you've been with us in Revelation, you've been getting a glimpse and a picture of Jesus' riches beyond splendor. Thrones, Angels, everywhere you turn, someone or something is falling on their face in the worship of Jesus. Why would they do that? Why all that praising? The second stanza of Houghton's hymn gets at the gist of it. It's because he's God. Thou who art God beyond all praising. He's worthy of all praising because He is God. And that's what Paul is getting to in Philippians 2, verse 6. He was in the form of God. God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit, the Scriptures teach us. So in the Incarnation... In the beauty and the miracle of Christmas, God the Son takes on flesh for our benefit so that we might know God 
He takes on flesh. John 1, the Word, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, took on flesh so that He could dwell among us. The writer of the Hebrews, in the first chapter, talking about Jesus, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As God, Jesus is indeed rich. And He is indeed the right recipient of all praising, of all glory, all honor. But, in what can only be seen and understood as a shocking and a staggering turn of events, this rich one exchanges his exceeding and incomparable wealth for the deepest poverty possible. That's what Paul says. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's what Houghton echoes in his hymn. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor became us poor. And so we need to look at this poverty Riches to rags, literally. So first I want to talk about the what of of his poverty. Of of what does the poverty of Jesus consist? And then I want to explore the why. What is the nature of the poverty of Jesus? He let go of all his riches. Everything that he had a right to to claim and to hold on to, to grasp tightly of and not let go and to benefit from, he let go. Philippians 2.6 He was God. But he didn't cling to that. He didn't insist on that. He didn't benefit from that. Verse 7, he emptied himself. For a time, He set aside everything. Form of God? How about form of a servant? Literally a slave. God becomes a man with fallen, human, corruptible flesh. Subject to pain, decay, and even death. This one who is the right recipient of all praising becomes vulnerable and subject to mocking, ridicule, scorn. He leaves the glorious splendor and home of heaven to occupy a feeding trough. Our confession and catechism do a great job of summarizing what all it was that Jesus experienced by humbling himself and by becoming poor in in his humiliation, in his condescension, in what Houghton calls in the second stanza of his hymn, stooping so low. Of what did that consist? It's the 27th question and answer in our shorter catechism. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, 
made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and, now here's the ultimate part of his poverty, the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Philippians 2 verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even hanging on a tree, which is the mark of being cursed by God. What would possess the eternal Son of God to exchange, to empty himself of all that was rightfully his? That he might experience the absolute worst pain and agony that any human at any time has ever experienced and felt. Would you pause for just a moment and think about that? Why? What would possess him to do that? That is one of the most important questions in the universe. We know that he did it. We talk about it a lot. But to think about why. Paul rightfully calls what Jesus does grace. Uh, the Second Corinthians verse there. For you know the grace of Jesus, though he was rich. What would elicit that grace from him? What would prompt it? What would motivate it? Now, this might be one of the best things that Houghton does in his hymn. Verse 1. Why does this rich one become poor? All for love's sake. Stanza 2. Why does the eternal Son of God become man? All for love's sake. And then instead of simply repeating that in the third stanza, he turns it up another notch. It's not just because he has love for us that he does this. It's because he is love. Third stanza, thou who art love. It's just who you are by nature. And it is most fully and beautifully expressed in his exchanging riches for poverty. And that poverty is poverty with a purpose. There's a so that. He exchanges his riches for poverty so that you and I might become rich. That is the glorious and the mysterious exchange of the gospel. We talked about it last week. Such a, such a bad deal for Jesus. He exchanges his wealth for poverty so that we can be rich. Let's explore riches again. Certainly the greatest, most valuable wealth or rich that we gain from Christ impoverishing himself is the benefit of his obedient death, right? That death should have been our death. We earned it, each and every one of us, by our rebellion and by our sin against our creator and our God. None of us has even come close to the perfect 
righteous standard of obedience that God places on us. We are the right recipients of his wrath and curse of death and hell forever. And yet, all for love's sake, he became poor. He became our substitute. He became our sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, to turn God's wrath away, to absorb it for us. There is no greater wealth we could receive. But it goes even beyond that. Verse 2 of Houghton's hymn says, Stooping so low, but sinners raising. Again, the staggering part of this great exchange. He stoops low even to death so that we might be raised up. Not just spared, but raised up, lifted up. And y'all, here's where the sermon could have really exploded with 20, 30, 40 different references in Scripture of how we've been raised up by Him. You could go on and on and on. Let me give you just one reference that sort of points you in the direction of those. And then I'm going to allude to several more places that you could easily search the Scriptures and find for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul's talking about this, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right? So that's, that's what we've earned by our sin and rebellion. We were dead. We were, we were dead men walking. We'd earned it. Even then, speaking of Christ, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Y'all, being raised up by Him and with Him, being seated with Him is the language of being united to Him. Of being one with him, of being in him and he in us. Verse 3 of the hymn, Houghton says, He's Emmanuel. Right? One of those prophesied names about the Lord Jesus. You're going to call him Emmanuel because he's going to be God with you. He's going to dwell with you, and not just with you, but in you by his Spirit. raised us we're seated with him we're united to him he's dwelling in us that means that we benefit from everything that is his that means that all of his riches become our riches we have the promise and hope for eternity yes but we also have his presence and power for today. We have new status. We're we're no longer rebels and enemies. We're adopted and adored daughters and sons. And again, like I said, I could go on and on and on, reference after reference after reference, uh, of what happened when stooping so low, sinners raising, Jesus did his work. But I want us to look finally at one more aspect of our newfound riches. An important part of our riches 
is who Jesus is to us and for us. And we see it in verse 3 of Houghton's hymn. Who is he? He's our Savior and King. And just as a given, so that we, we have this clear in our minds, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who impoverished Himself that we might become rich, is Savior and King. He will rescue as a Savior. And He will rule and reign as your King. You don't get the rescue apart from the ruling and the reigning. It's a package deal. They're inseparable. Jesus will have it no other way. And you'll have it no other way because His goal isn't merely to rescue you. His goal is to change and transform you. Houghton gets to this in the third stanza of his hymn. He's Savior and King to whom we sing, Make us what thou wouldst have us be. Part of our newfound riches is that Jesus transforms us into new creations. He conforms us to his own likeness. Slowly but surely, he molds and he shapes us so that we look like him, so that we act like him, so that we love like him. Now, in studying each of these hymns for this series and the truths of Scripture that go along with them, there's been a really cool moment for me in each one where the lyrics of the hymn and the truths of Scripture have kind of coalesced, and there's been this aha moment. For this hymn this week, it was on this point of our transformation that the light bulb went on for me, and I said, ooh. And I got to thinking about each of these passages, the 2 Corinthians 8 and the Philippians 2. And Y'all, there's deep, deep, deep theology about Jesus that Paul is getting at in both of these. About the humiliation, about the condescension of Jesus in the incarnation. But as is so very important that we always do when we're looking at Scripture, we've got to think about the context. right? I lifted one verse out of 2 Corinthians 8. What's the context there? Right? More verses out of Philippians, but what was going on before Paul got to this? See, Paul isn't just dropping this deep theology about Christ on these folks just because he feels like giving them a theology lesson. No, in each letter, in the letter to Corinth, in the letter to Philippi, he's actively working on something else. Right? He's got something very practical that he's working on that he's seeking for everyday life. Right? See, sometimes folks think, oh, I don't care anything about theology. I just need to know how to get by, you know, day to day. Right? Don't give me theology. Give me something practical that I can use to help me in my day to day living. Folks, theology is very practical. Theology, what you believe about God drives how you live. It affects your day to day, your moment to moment, whether you realize it or not. The ESV 
gives little headings, right, for chunks of Scripture. The ESV titles chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, Encouragement to Give Generously. That's where he drops this little theology truth bomb about who Jesus is. In the midst of encouraging them to give generously, he's trying to get these folks to loosen their grips on their wallets, to get their hearts to loosen their attachment to their wealth, that they might give and bless the work and ministry of the church, that they might do so generously and sacrificially and even joyfully. And to that end, right, how am I going to get this through their thick little skulls? Right? Well, maybe if I get them to think about the unbelievable generosity and sacrificial giving of Jesus. He was rich, yet for your sakes. See, Paul is seeking a practical change in the lives of these Corinthians. And he uses deep theological truth about Jesus to stimulate that change. What about the Philippians? All right, so the church at Philippi, overall it's a pretty healthy church. They don't have the rampant immorality going on that uh, Corinth has been struggling with. But there's still some infighting. There's still some bickering. There's still some relational troubles. There's still a whole lot too much of folks looking out for number one, prioritizing self over others. And, and you know that by reading the whole letter, but you even get a pretty good picture of it of just from the two verses that precede our verses that we read today. All right? Again, these deep theological verses about Christ's humiliation and condescension. Well, what comes before verses 5 through 11? Verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Strong command from Paul, very practical in nature. Guys, you've got to get along. You have got to get along. Now, how would he go about seeing that change in their lives? How could he possibly motivate them toward that change? What could stimulate that change to actually happen in their lives? Um, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider how he put others' interests ahead of his own. Now, I want you to hang with me here. We're almost done. This is the most important part of probably anything I've said in a long time. Both of these passages are perfect models of what gospel transformation and growth look like. In neither of these is Paul saying, y'all better get your act together. In neither of these is he saying, you better pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do the right thing, because it's the right thing, and you better do it. That's not what Paul is doing at all. He's not giving a naked command to be obeyed. 
He says, I want you to think about your Savior. I want you to focus on Him. I want you to meditate upon who He is and what He's done. I want you to look at His generosity. Would you just look at that? I want you to look at His selflessness. Isn't it amazing? Doesn't it take your breath away? Please don't you ever forget that you've been loved like that. Because see, Paul knows that's the secret. That's the answer to the $64,000 question of how do we change? How do we grow? How do we get better? Is by coming to grips with the fact that we've been loved like that. We've been loved with the jaw-dropping generosity of the one who was rich beyond all splendor. All for love's sake became poor so that we could be rich. Coming to grips with the fact that we've been loved by this one who set aside every right he had for a time. So we could die in our place. Y'all, to be loved like that changes us from the inside out. It messes with our heads and our hearts in the best way possible. It changes our desires and our want-tos. His absolute generosity with me makes me not want to be stingy with my stuff. I just don't even want to cling to it like I used to want to cling to it. His selfless consideration of my needs actually makes me want to think about others. It's the craziest thing. It's supernatural power that gets unleashed inside of us, in our hearts and in our lives. With the ultimate end and the point of it all being Just like the last stanza of the hymn and the end of Paul's verses there in the Philippians 2 part, that we would worship him with our words, with our lives, with our selflessness, with our generosity, that we would join with Paul in bringing glory and honor to Jesus who is worthy that every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that He's Lord. He's our glorious Lord. He's our Savior and our King. He's glorious beyond comparing. He's worthy of all praising. My Father, would You in these moments grip our hearts tightly even as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesians with the width and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Jesus. It is incomprehensible to our finite human hearts and minds, but by your help, would you grip our selfish hearts with his love that you would begin to break that selfishness? Would you grip our stingy hearts with the love of 
our generous Savior Jesus. That you might begin to break that stinginess and replace it with generosity. Would you do that for all the other things that we struggle with? Would you help us to see how our being loved perfectly by our Savior truly, radically changes and transforms us, makes us into who you wouldst have us be? Grip our hearts by the love of Jesus in this Advent season that you might make us the men and women, the boys and girls that you want us to be. We ask in the name of this one who was rich, yet for ourselves, for our sakes became poor. Amen. Would you please uh, stand and prepare to sing? Deborah's going to play through it once so that you get the feel for it, and then let's sing this hymn together.